welcome to today's session. So as I'm sure you are all aware, we are going to be taking a Marxist look at the US Civil War. And we're also going to have a look at the fight against slavery and how British workers contributed to that fight against slavery. So I'm going to start with Mark, who is a member of Workers' Liberty, and he's going to take you through a history of the US Civil War. And then after he's spoken, I'm going to hand you over to Sasha, who is also a member of Workers' Liberty and has written a pamphlet about British workers and their fight against slavery, which he's put into the chat function, PDF in the chat function, if anybody would like to read that. Um, so yeah, without any further ado, I'm going to unmute Mark and I'm gonna let him start. Okay, um, good evening, everybody. My name is Mark Osborne, I'm a member of Workers' Liberty, as Ellie said, in South London. Um, I've got about 15 minutes, I guess, to, to talk about the US Civil War, which is a difficult ask. So we're talking about the period from April um, 1861 to April 65, almost exactly four years. I'm just going to show you, see if I can put some, share a screen with you. So this is, um, this is the Richmond uh, waterfront uh, right in the last week of um, the war. Um, I think it shows the immense destruction. The reason I picked this photograph is uh, it reminds me of some of the uh, bombings of uh, German towns like Hamburg at the end of the Second World War. Um, the American Civil War was extraordinarily violent and destructive. I mean, although there's some new research that's been done about the numbers of people that died in the war, um, I mean, for a long time, it was assumed that slightly over 600,000 people had been killed as a direct consequence of the war. That's actually been updated by scholars in the last 30 or 40 years. Um, it's probably maybe 750,000 people died, including 50,000 people who died in soldiers who died in POW camps in the last two years of the war, which tells you something about the way that the soldiers were treated by their, by their captors. Um, by the end of the war, the Southern, the southern States, the Confederate States, had been, uh, to all intents and purposes, this is destroyed. Um, 11 of the biggest towns have been um, destroyed. I mean, uh, Atlanta, for example, was burnt down. Um, the Confederate currency had uh, collapsed. The banks had collapsed. The railroads didn't work. Um, the urban, I mean, the urban factories in the South were, were never particularly strong but not, none of them worked, they'd all stopped. Um, Barter had come back and uh, with the emancipation of the slaves, the capital had been wiped out um, from the South and it took um, 100 years plus for it to recover in any sense at all. So um, I, I just wanna, because I've got 15 minutes and this is virtually impossible, I wanna try and answer three questions, which kind of on, on first sight seem, might seem quite, easy and straightforward to answer, but I'm not sure they are really. So why did the war happen and why in 1861? And what was the war fought for? And what happened to black America? So I'm just gonna try and talk about these questions. So you could say, you could answer the why did the war happen and why in 1861? And you could simply say, because, because at the end of 1860, Abram Lincoln, um, the candidate of the new Republican party, 
um, became president, was elected president. And that's true. Um, the war did begin for that reason, but it kind of begs more questions than it answers, really, because, well, who was this Lincoln and why was he elected in the first place? And um, why did the South find it so objectionable that the southern states rebelled, uh, attempted to secede um, from the Union, from the American Union, and fought a bloody war for four years to, to keep, you know, to keep themselves away from the North, essentially. Um, the fact is, you could also say, which is also true, you know, that, that slavery was behind the war, the question of slavery. But that needs a bit of unpicking too, you see. Right, so um, when America was, was founded, it was founded where slavery was, was prevalent. And the founding fathers believed that slavery would die out eventually. Um, and indeed, in many of the northern states, it did die out in the decades after the founding of the states. Um, so, sometimes it was phased out, um, it was bought out partially, but it did die out. And in the north, you got, um, by 1850, 1860, you got the beginnings of an enormous industrial power um, in the northern states. Uh, big urban centres, increasingly big factories, uh, increasingly connected by railways and modern or more, you know modern communications of the time anyway um, and in the west you've got free farmers settling and you've got enormous immigration um, remember that the uh, the revolutions of 1848 in Europe had failed and uh, many immigrants came over German immigrants for example hundreds of thousands of them in the 1850s many of them were uh, radical um, and were against slavery and they settled in the north. Um, in the south, however, you had a hardened um, slave system, which was based not on free labour as it was in the north, the capitalist system in the north, but based on slave labour. Now, um, at the turn of the century, um, 1800, um, the populations in the north and south were roughly equal. By the time the war happened in 1860, there were twice as many Americans in the North as there were in the South, something like slightly more than 20 million to slightly more than 10 million in the South. And um, by 1860, the census of 1860 suggested there were, there were about um, 4 million uh, black people in the States, of which 90% were mainly in rural populations on plantations in the South. Um, now, the, the interests of the northern capitalists and the western farmers were different, radically different, to the uh, slave owners. The slave owners sold cotton. Cotton was the big, uh, the big crop. Tobacco as well, but cotton in particular, on the world market, particularly to countries like France and in particular to Britain. Um, so, um, but in the north, the demands of the northern capitalists were for... Uh, uh, tariffs to protect their new industries, for a national bank, um, a national government which would develop an infrastructure. And the ideology of the North was logically for, for, for free labour. I mean, slavery had not died out particularly in the North because of the goodwill of the, of the people in the North. It's because slavery, if you think about it, actually, it's a very inefficient system. Um, you can uh, get people by threatening them and terrorising them to work in your fields. Um, but it's very difficult to build advanced industry on a slave workforce. They, they tried it in the South, didn't work. 
Um, and increasingly, after the slave revolt, Nat Turner's slave revolt of 1831, there was a big clampdown in the southern states to prevent slaves being able, able to, to read or write. Um, and they found that um, if you let slaves read and write, and the prerequisite of working in modern industry is some degree of literacy, um, they rebelled. Um, so, uh, so why did this? Why did the war start? Well, essentially, the war started because, for the first time um, in the 19th century, uh, political power had been won uh, by the North and by Northern capitalists. It was Lincoln. There had been a series of compromises for at least 40 years prior to that, whereby um, the balance between, especially in the Senate, um, between nor uh, Northern free states and Southern states slave states had been maintained. And that broke down in the 1840s for all sorts of reasons, because of the acquisition of Texas, because of war with Mexico and the amalgamation of new territories, and because the opening up of, um, of America. Let me just show you this. So this is the picture of America in 1860. Um, I'm gonna talk about the elections in 1860, but you can see that big brown block of territory um, were, were not states, they, you know, America, you know, they, they were, it was territories that were not organized into states yet. And there was a battle between North and South about who would control those states, whether they would be free states or whether they'd be slave states. And that radically destabilized the two-party system, which was Democrats, who were the party of the slave owners, and the Whig Party. And by the early 1850s, the Whig Party had disintegrated and fallen to bits which created space for this new radical movement, which stood its first candidate, Fremont, in the election before 1860, and which stood Lincoln in 1860. And you can see just very briefly, um, you can see how the vote splits. The red votes, the Republican votes in the North. The, um, the Democrats had split. Um, um, there were, um, uh, the Northern Democrats are, are kind of dark green. You can see that state in the middle. That's uh, Stephen Douglas, who was a racist bigot, but he wasn't bigoted enough for the uh, hardline Democrats of the South, the dark green states. And you see the border states, um, Virginia and Kentucky and Tennessee in the, in the middle there. So um, essentially what happened is Lincoln came through the middle. The Democrats, the traditional slave party split and Lincoln came through the middle to win the election. And very quickly, um, South, starting with South Carolina, after Lincoln's inauguration in March 1861, um, the slave states, the, the dark red states there, seceded um, in, in the, beginning of, uh, the beginning of April uh, 1861, followed by other states, the middle states, the lighter red states in the middle. That's, um, that must be North Carolina, Tennessee, uh, Arkansas, and Virginia, the, the other states followed them. So it, it was, um, they found it intolerable and a, 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 a terrible threat that they were being um, confronted by Lincoln. Now, the important thing to remember at the beginning is Lincoln hated slavery genuinely, but he was not an abolitionist. Um, he didn't intend to destroy slavery. Um, he wouldn't have destroyed slavery if he'd, he'd been left to his own devices, but he was forced into it. And um, as the slave-owning slave states seceded, um, the war started when South Carolina um, attacked uh, Union Outpost, um, Fort Sumter, 
uh, and the war began. Um, there were attempts at compromise. The compromise wasn't possible. So um, this bloody war started over 250 battles. Um, Lincoln started the war under the banner of defending the Union, not of abolition of slavery. And the banner of the uh, Confederacy was a lie, really. It was, um, it, they said that we are defending states' rights, that the rights of states to secede and decide their own policy. But obviously, obviously that, that begs the question, well, what, what right were you defending? And the right they were defending to have was the right to, um, to use slave labour. Um, and, um, and they fought for it. Incidentally, the, the secession was basically carried out by big slave owners who were actually a small minority in the South. Um, most of the whites were uh, poor farmers and didn't directly control slaves. Um, and um, you've got this gruelling war, which um, in the first phases, the Union, the North, looked as though they, they might lose. Remember, really, the war had to be conducted by the North. The nor North had to conquer the South. The South basically had to just simply sustain itself um, and in particular look for recognition from, uh, from Britain and uh, France. They were hoping to just hold off um, the North. And basically they hoped for weir war weariness to uh, collapse the war in the North. And it, it ne they nearly succeeded. Um, so um, the interesting thing here is, I mean, I presume I'm going on quite a long time, but anyway, never mind. Um, the, the, at the time, one of the interesting things about this whole war is at the time Marx and Engels were alive, and this is the mature Marx and Engels. Um, Marx had been writing for a New York paper for a long time about everything except internal American politics. But in 1861, they basically stopped paying him, and he had to write a column for a Viennese uh, newspaper depressor. And he started writing about the American Civil War, and those writings are very interesting, as are the letters to Engels. Now, what were Marx and Engels' perspectives on the war? Well, their perspectives, and, and also Marx was writing to a lot of his friends, who were some of whom the Germans, were um, quite prominent in the Union Army as well, fighting the South. Um, well, Marx and, Marx and Engels, there's actually an argument between Marx and Engels. Engels is very, he's a military expert, and he's very, very concerned that the, that the South is going to win. And Marx basically says, calm down, mate. Um, you are paying too much attention to the military aspect of this war. Pay attention to the politics. Marx expected that the enormous industrial power of the North would eventually grind the South into bit to bits, and he was right. But he expected something more. He expected the war to be put on a revolutionary basis. He expected, by the logic of the war, it would be necessary for, for Lincoln to declare a war against slavery, to undercut the actual material basis of slave power and the slaveocracy of the South. And that happened. Now, Lincoln wanted to do this a bit earlier, but actually he had to wait till a victory in, 18, in 1862, and he issued an, the Emancipation Proclamation in September 1862, which declared, as of the beginning of January 1863, all slaves in rebel territory would be free. Um, and um, at that point as well, they started enlisting uh, black soldiers into the, into the Union armies. Not, not on an equal basis, it had to be said, but, they, but black, black men started to hold rifles and fight. And that was a tremendously significant, um, empowering um, facts about the final phases of, of the U.S. war. Um, and um, the war did eventually um, take the shape that Marx anticipated. These are the pe main people involved. So on the, from left to right, um, there's Lincoln, 
the uh, the North's president, U.S. Grant, who was the man who led the North to victory in the end. Incidentally, Grant's an interesting um, character because the, the initial phases of the war, were, the Northern War was led by a guy called McClellan. And you see this in revolutionary wars. And the North's war against the South was a revolutionary war. It was a bourgeois revolution against the South, but a revolutionary war. From above, the slaves were freed, but they were freed by a revolutionary movement from the North. And it was, it's similar to the English Civil War. I mean, the English Civil War, the parliamentary forces originally were led by Essex, and they were moderates. The North's war was led by a guy called McClellan, who was moderate. And it took a while for people like Grant and his subordinate Sherman to wage a total, what, what Grant describes as a total war against the South. The South politically was led by Jefferson Davis, Jeff Davis, and his leading general, the most famous general of the US Civil War, Robert E. Lee, who, who walked free at the end. Davis spent a couple of years in jail, but Lee walked free um, after the war, which is almost unbelievable, really. But anyway, now this, this particular map is, is, uh, is really, really interesting because it shows you um, how, um, how the Union armies smashed their way through um, slave territory. And you can see the Mississippi um, on the, towards the left, the vertical line towards the left of the map um, was conquered first. Um, the, the Union take, took New Orleans and then in 1863 at Vicksburg, you can just about make out Vicksburg. It's just there, Vicksburg there. There was a, there was a battle where the Union lines looked like um, there were trench, it was trench warfare like the First World War. Looked, some of the pictures looked like the First World War. Tremendous bloody battle. And they beat them and they opened up the Mississippi and they chopped the Confederacy into two. And then um, in 1864, um, facing an election, which for a while Abraham Lincoln thought he would win. I mean, the, the, the South was a, was a very centralised machine, which is ironic given the state's rights slogan. But in the North, it was a democracy. And, and Lincoln in 64 faced, faced a, um, an election he thought he would lose. And... Um, he won in the end, in part because um, Grant's subordinate, Sherman, um, won the Battle of Atlanta, which you can see there, Atlanta. He took Atlanta, set fire to it, and he marched through Georgia to the, sh to the sea at Savannah and took Savannah. Um, at the end of 64, he, said to, he sent uh, Lincoln a, a telegram saying it's, um, it's, a, it's a, a New Year's present or a Christmas present. Um, and his battlefront at that stage of the war was 60 miles wide and he smashed everything to bits. They ripped up rail lines, they burnt everything to the ground, they ate everything else. And then they marched north through South Carolina, SC South Carolina. And South Carolina was, um, was the state that started the war and Sherman's forces were particularly brutal in South Carolina. They destroyed everything they could get their hands on. This was total brutal war by the north and it destroyed ground into the dust the southern states. Okay, so um, now, final, final few, re few remarks. So at the end of the war, Lincoln, was, um, uh, Lincoln had won the war, but a couple of weeks after the end of the war, he was murdered. He was murdered by um, John Wilkes Booth. Um, and um, Lincoln, who'd run with a, a Democrat in the North as his vice presidential candidate, a war Democrat, a Democrat who supported the war for the Union, uh, Andrew Johnson, now, Johnson took over, and um, the period um, of um, after um, the, um, the war is known as Reconstruction in America. It basically lasts from kind of 1863, where they were taking Confederate territory, till the final remnants of, uh, of the northern intervention into the southern slave states ended 
ignominiously in 1877. And the first phase of that war was, was, um, was run by Andrew Johnson, who was a pig. If you look at uh, Marx and Engels' uh, correspondence, Engels comments that Johnson more and more, his hatred of the Negro more and more comes through. Um, and Johnson got into a battle with the radical Republicans in, in the party who genuinely wanted to smash the remnants of the Confederacy. Um, and there was a, um, eventually Johnson um, was pushed out. U.S. Grant, who'd led the American Northern War Machine, was elected for two, for two terms. And there was a battle between Northern intervention and what, what was an enormous white reactionary rebellion in the southern states of America, which produced the Ku Klux Klan, which produced right, white terror and white terrorist organizations, which by the 1880s had, had reimposed a form of white rule, Jim Crow rule on the southern states of America. It's a terrible story. And in the round, although it's a, beating slavery was a tremendous victory, the, um, the, the willingness of the, of the northern states and the northern political machine to allow uh, black people to be forced back um, as W.B. Dubois said, black people walked out into the sun for a few more minutes and then gradually went, went back and walked backwards um, into the darkness. I mean, that, that's the truth of that period of reconstruction in the 1870s and 80s. But I'll leave it there. Thank you. That was really brilliant, Mark. Thank you very much. So without any further ado, I'm going to bring Sasha in to talk about um, how British workers contributed to um, this period. So, Sasha. Okay, um, I'm just going to post a timeline. So Mark set, Mark set the context, so hopefully that will mean a lot of what I say makes a bit more sense. Um, so in 1864, um, the International Working Men's Association was founded, and its founding statement drafted by Karl Marx said the following. It was not the wisdom of the ruling classes, but a heroic resistance to their criminal folly by the working classes of England that saved the West of Europe from plunging headlong into an infamous crusade for the perpetuation of slavery on the other side of the Atlantic. Now, actually, in terms of what happened, you can debate to what extent British workers' actions actually stopped um, UK intervention in the Civil War. But undoubtedly, the political significance of those actions was huge, and it contributed to a, uh, a new birth, an upsurge of the labour movement uh, in a number of countries, including Britain. So earlier on, I posted um, a link to a pamphlet called um, Workers Against Slavery, um, which talks about it in more detail, although it's still quite short. Um, I'll post that again later. Okay, so first of all, why did, um, why did the role of Britain matter? So as Mark mentioned early on, one, one factor favouring the Confederacy was foreign support. So France's dictator Louis Napoleon sent troops to Mexico, uh, which overthrew the US-aligned Republican government and then saw the pro-Confederate puppet monarch. Um, Britain, uh, Britain's government, which was a Whig um, or Liberal government led by Henry Palmerston, also leaned towards the Confederacy. So along with France, um, it recognised Confederacy as a belligerent power, which was kind of a step, a step towards diplomatic recognition and gave it various international rights. It turned a blind eye to the illegal building of Confederate warships in Britain. So after the war, uh, Britain had to pay the US $15 million uh, in damages as a result of that. Um, and senior members of the government wanted to go further, some of them favouring out, outright military intervention. So, for instance, Gladstone, who's later known as a, you know, a champion of liberalism and democracy, who's a, is heavily pro-Confederate. Um, the Confederacy had agents in Britain working to secure official support and to win over public opinion, including working class opinion, which they were very 
uh, bothered about influencing. Now, the British government claimed to be anti-slavery, um, and slavery had, in fact, been abolished in the British Empire. So what was going on? So this is how I explained it. As long as the British cotton manufacturers depended on slave-grown cotton, it could truthfully be asserted that they rested on twofold slavery, the indirect slavery of the white man in England and the direct slavery of the black man on the other side of the Atlantic. Um, other factors that were important were hostility to the US as a rising power that would challenge the British Empire and um, hostility to any form of democracy, which is how, they met, how the US was seen. Now, Britain was the world's strongest naval power, so if it had intervened, it would have helped the Confederacy massively, you know, in terms of breaking, breaking the US blockade and probably winning its independence. Um, in November 1861, there was a crisis over the US seizure of a British ship called the Trent, which was carrying Confederate diplomats to Britain. Um, and its war seemed imminent. So, for instance, the Palmerston government dispatched thousands of troops to Canada. Now, that crisis was diffused, but there were a number of times over the next years where war loomed on and off. Um, and one element that tilted against it was the stance taken by Britain's workers. So what did, what did workers in Britain do? Um, there was a widespread expectation in all kinds of quarters that most British workers would support intervention against the US. So textile workers in areas like Lancashire suffered massively as a result of, a, of the war. So, you know, the supply of cotton coming across the Atlantic from the southern states dries up. Um, unemployment in textile areas increases massively. So um, in late 1860, it's basically almost zero. Two years later, it's 330,000, which is about 50%. Um, a year after that, it's still 25%. And a year after that, so right towards the end of the war, um, it's still 15%. Um, and many other workers in Britain suffered as well. So Marx wrote in January 1862, English intervention in America has become a bread and butter question for the working class. In addition, no means of inflaming its anger against the United States is scorned by its natural superiors. Um, in addition to that, Britain's workers' movement had been weak since uh, the defeat of Chartism in the 1840s. So in the 1850s, unions had grown, um, but they were not very radical politically in general. And, and another factor, many established union leaders and journals that claimed to speak for the workers attacked the North or even sympathised with the Confederacy. I haven't got time to go into why that was the case, but it's actually quite interesting to discuss, so you should ask me about that. Um, Pro-Confederate capitalists hired um, ex-radicals often um, uh, to propagandise among the, the workers um, in favour of the Confederacy. And despite all those factors, that agitation largely failed to make a dent. There was a long history of anti-slavery campaigning in Britain, including from the establishment, as I said. And when these conflicts broke out, many in the ruling class showed that they valued their own interests above their anti-slavery convictions. But many workers felt differently. And that was particularly the case as the war in America developed and took a more definitely anti-slavery turn. So from the end of 1861, this widespread sentiment among workers broke out into organised protests. And again, there's a lot more detail in my pamphlet, um, but here I'll look at some of the high points. So first of all, um, what happened up north? Um, in 1862, there was a wave of um, large pro-Northern working class rallies that took place, uh, in, particularly in Lancashire and Yorkshire. And I think, from, from what I understand, they were something like a cross between public meetings and demonstrations. So when you think a big meeting, you know, I, you know, we've got 36 people here, that's good, but I'm talking in many hundreds and hundreds of people, in many cases, thousands. Um, to give you a flavour of it, in, a, in some cases, there, was a, there were attempts to organise pro-Confederate meetings. 
and it was typically the case that those meetings would be taken over, taken over by hostile workers and turned into pro-union meetings. So for instance, in July 1862, 4,000 people attended a meeting in Blackburn, which was called to demand recognition of the Confederacy. Um, and the Secretary of the Town's Weavers Union moved an amendment saying, actually, we shouldn't be for the recognition of the Confederacy, we should be for the North. And um, out of the 4,000 people, 12 people voted against. Um, and the meeting then voted to condemn the people who had originally organised it. So, you know, they, the pro-Confederate people found it very hard to get a grip on the working class. You know, of course, if you read the stuff, there were pro-Confederate meetings and so on, but there was a very definite trend in favour of the North and against slavery. Um, and that wave of northern meetings climaxed with one of 6,000 people, including many textile workers, um, at Manchester's Free Trade Hall on the 31st of December 1862. And it was called then because it was the day before Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation came into effect. And to give you a flavour of the politics of that meeting, it passed a resolution which said that the following. This meeting, recognising the common brotherhood of mankind and the sacred and inalienable right of every human being to freedom and equal protection, records its detestation of Negro slavery, thus forever renouncing that unworthy prejudice which refuses the rights of humanity to man and woman on account of their colour. Justice demands for the blacks, no less than the whites, the protection of the law. Um, and it so happened in the, in the audience of that meeting, there was a guy called William Jackson, who was an African-American, who had, been, had previously been a slave to the Confederate president, Jefferson Davis, uh, and there were calls on the floor to, for him to speak, and he went up and spoke to, to enormous cheers. Um, the one other thing I want to say about our meeting is that the Manchester Guardian, which is the predecessor of today's Guardian, denounced it, which of course they did. Um, so there were also meetings all across the country. So, um, from, so for instance, from Brighton to Edinburgh and even in Liverpool, which was previously seen as a bastion of the Confederacy, uh, sorry, support for the Confederacy because of its historical role in the slave trade. Even in Liverpool, there were big working class meetings. But meetings in London were also very important. And Marx reported on them. So, for instance, for the Austrian paper that Mark, uh, Mark mentioned, the presser, Marx reports on those meetings uh, from January 1862. So the, the, that night, on the 31st of December 1862, the, um, the, the night the meeting in Manchester happened, there were also two very big meetings in London. But most significant politically, for what I'm going to talk about later, was the March 1863 meeting, which took place in St James's Hall, Piccadilly which was organised by London trade unionists, and Marx was actually present at that meeting. So there were about 3,000 people there, mainly skilled workers, and they heard from a new generation of you know, left-leaning trade union activists. And that meeting adopted a resolution which said that the Civil War had opened the gates of freedom to millions of our Negro, bro Negro brothers who have been deprived of their manhood by the infernal laws which have so long disgraced America. Like our brothers in Lancashire, we would rather perish than band ourselves in unholy alliance with the South and slavery. So maybe not so hot on, on women's rights, given a lot of the, a lot of the cotton workers were women, the North were women, but anyway. Um, Abraham Lincoln also recognised the role that British workers' protests played. So Lincoln said, I never knew anything truer than their conduct. They knew that to get cotton would be to get, get them work and food. Their instinct would be to break through the blockade and get the cotton, but they could not allow their instinct to override their consciences. Okay, so this is a very important political movement and it has very large political consequences. So I'm just going to talk briefly about that before I finish. Um, so in the US, the end of slavery produces a period of big worker struggles. So the period Mark talked about reconstruction. So struggles by the former slaves in the South and also uh, a newly strengthened workers movement in the North. Um, although it's, that workers movement is 
much less good on racism than, than the, the British movement that I've cited. Um, but there's also a new birth of working class politics in Britain. So Edward Beasley, who's a UCL academic who was involved in organising the St James's Hall meeting, that night he predicted the following. We are met here tonight, we say it openly, not merely as friends of emancipation, but as friends of reform. This is the first time I believe that the trade unionists of London have met together to pronounce on a political question. I'm sure it will not be the last. So the people who ran the campaign around American solidarity in London also ran the London Trades Council. Um, and as well as union organising, they, they organised around international solidarity and around the demand for workers in Britain to have the vote. And the connections that had been built in the war between old working class veterans, so typically Chartists, radical intellectuals like Marx and Beasley, and a new layer of working class activists, those connections helped bring about um, the International Working Men's Association. So as, as the European economy developed in the 1860s uh, and became more interconnected, there was a lot of attempts to move workers across borders for strike breaking. So for instance, there was a strike in the London Bureau in 1859 where, where European workers were brought in. Um, and there was a lot of discussion about how to respond to that. Uh, there was also growing interest in democratic struggles in various countries, including Poland. So in 1863, French workers leaders visited London to discuss the Polish question. And they also discussed with uh, British trade unionists around building links. And that led in September 1864 to a big international meeting in Covent Garden, attended by activists from Britain, France, Ireland, Poland, Italy, and Germany. And that's how the, the International Working Men's Association was born. Marx joined its general council, bringing with him uh, others who had been active in the German Revolution in 1848. So the international, one of the things it did is it organised to stop strike breaking, but it did it on the basis of um, building international solidarity. And there's a fantastic quote, which I haven't got time for, um, from the British trade unionists about this, which I might cite at the end. Robert Applegarth, who was a secretary of the Carpenters Union, he argues, look, if that's all we'd done, that would have been some, really something. But he also says, we did more. Um, we enlarged the views of English trade unionists and showed them that unions could be used for higher purposes than simple wage quarrels, and that an international union was necessary to attack the evil that oppressed us at the root. Now, this radicalisation had its limits, which again, you should ask me about and come back to, but it was extremely significant. And the American Civil War had an enormous impact in America, of course, but it also had an enormous impact on the labour movement in a number of countries around the world. And the years that followed saw an upsurge of struggle, including, of course, the Paris Commune of 1871. Okay, Andy, can I have two more minutes and I'll finish? Is that okay? Okay. So lastly, I'm going to talk about the issue of winning the vote. So um, a British workers' meeting to mourn... So Lincoln, as you know, was assassinated in 1865. A British workers' meeting called to mourn his death. Um, it, its chair argued that the measure of success was not merely to knock the fetters off the slave, but to gain the rights of citizenship. And when he said that, the meeting cheered. Um, but of course, British workers, um, although they weren't nearly as oppressed as the former slaves, didn't have the vote either. Um, and Chartism, the first working class political party in the world in the 1840s, had been organised around the demand for workers to have the vote. But after the decline of Chartism, that demand you know, was still there, but it had faded. But it's revived by the American Solidarity Campaign. Um, partly because the North's victory um, is, uh, in the Civil War is perceived as a triumph for democracy, um, but also because of the role the British workers played. Um, and many trade unionists in Britain took up both causes, the cause of American solidarity and the cause of winning the vote, and they saw them as linked. So in 1867, uh, and I think this is quite an amazing bit of historical, you know, the fact it's the same year. In 1867, the same year that male ex-slaves in America were enfranchised by the radical Republicans, 
the Reform Act in Britain enfranchised over a million British workers for the first time and opened up a period of winning democratic reforms in Britain. So um, to give you a flavour of that, between 18, the 1865 general election and the 1885 general election, the number of voters, the, the population of Britain increases by 20%, but the number of voters increases by 450%, fivefold. Now, the limits of that are obvious. The poorest working class men and all women won't, won't get the vote till half a century later. And moreover, the immediate result is not a boost for working class politics, it's a boost for, for the Liberal Party. However, it did lay the ground for further radicalisation in the 1880s. Although the 1867 Reform Act fell short of what the International Working Men's Association had demanded, its, its members were central to the campaign that won it, mobilising many thousands in meetings and demonstrations. So I think this is very inspiring history uh, in Britain as well as in America. We should learn from it, we should take inspiration from it, but we should also think about what the lessons are for our struggle today as internationalists and socialists. Thank you.